listening to 99 Years, a black exploration of the deliberate creation of the whitest state in the nation. My name is Samuel James. If you had been enslaved in the 1800s in these United States, and you wanted to escape with your life, you could hope for one of three ways out. The first would be to run away. Maybe you'd be lucky enough to meet up with Harriet Tubman, or another Underground Railroad conductor. You'd risk starvation, dying of exposure, being killed and eaten by animals. The Fugitive Slave Act meant it was illegal for anyone to help you, and if you were caught as both stolen property and thief, you would face unspeakable punishment set by the endless limits of antebellum cruelty. The second way out could be by using the system against itself. In 1846, an enslaved man by the name of Dred Scott tried this. He offered to purchase himself and his wife from their owner, Irene Emerson, but she wasn't selling. So he tried to use the system a different way. He was in Missouri, and in that state at that time, it was possible for an enslaved person to find freedom by petitioning a court. And so Scott tried to sue his way to freedom. During the previous two years, 25 freedom suits had been filed in the St. Louis Circuit Court, but only one had been successful, so it was a long shot. Too long a shot, it turns out, because Scott lost his case, and back into slavery he went. But Scott had only lost on a technicality. After years of legal maneuvering, his case was back on the docket, and this time he won. The court ruled Scott and his family were free. And that was that for two years, until the Missouri Supreme Court overturned the ruling. So Scott went to federal court, where he lost again. The United States Supreme Court was the last stop, but in 1857, more than a decade into his journey, with seven of nine justices appointed by pro-slavery presidents, five of which from enslaver families, the court sided against Scott. Seven to two. They ruled that because Scott was black, he was not a citizen. He had no right to sue. Chief Justice Roger B. Taney argued black people were, quote, of an inferior order and altogether unfit to associate with the white race, either in social or political relations, and so far inferior that they had no rights which the white man was bound to respect. End quote. The ruling also stated that Congress could not ban slavery anywhere in the country. Now, here, in 2022, it's probably very difficult to imagine what might happen if an ultra-conservative Supreme Court declared a single physical feature of a person meant they had no legal right to their own actual body. But in 1857, it meant the country came undone. Abolitionists were outraged. Soon the Confederacy seceded from the United States and the Civil War began, which, by the way, is the third option. Get rid of the system entirely. Where was my home state of Maine during all this? Maine is the only state that is mentioned in the Dred Scott decision. See, that's something that people don't realize, not even in Maine. Dred Scott decision mentions that in that the state of Maine, blacks vote. 
We've always voted in the state of Maine. That's Bob Green, a historian and eighth-generation black Mainer. If you want to know about Maine's black history, Bob is the one. Black folks have a long history in Maine. First black person that we know by name to been in what is now the state of Maine was here in 1608. That's 12 years before the pilgrims arrived at Plymouth Rock. Mathieu de Costa, and he was an interpreter or a translator. Uh, you know, one of the things that I have noticed in my research, and we don't talk about, but remember there was a black man with Cortez, uh, the Spanish explorer Cortez across the southwest part of this country. There was uh, a black man with Lewis and Clark when they went in. Uh, Mathieu de Costa came in with the French explorers. All of these early blacks that you hear here were here for one reason. They were the translators. They were the ones that spoke all of the languages. If you are an American, it is very likely you are hearing about da Costa for the first time. And that probably feels very normal. Why would anyone other than a local historian know about some obscure translator from more than 400 years ago? Well, like Bob said, da Costa set foot on what is now Maine. Back then, it was the land of the Wabanaki people. And that stretched from the top of Massachusetts well into southern Canada. And since da Costa was an explorer, this meant he was also the first black person to set foot on Canadian soil. Canadians know da Costa. His bio is on their national website. There are children's books about him. In 2017, the Canadian Postal Service put da Costa on a stamp, a nationally celebrated figure on one side of the border and on the other a severed anchor. That old adage, those who cannot remember their past are condemned to repeat it, it leaves something out. It leaves out that pasts are not always lost just because we become forgetful. They can also be deliberately hidden. The condemnation of some is often beneficial to others. It doesn't always have to be a conspiracy. It can be a pattern set a long time ago. Sometimes it can be both. Quote, Klan wins victory at Portland polls. End quote. That's a headline from the September 23, 1923 edition of the New York Times. The KKK had successfully installed a system of government in Portland, Maine, designed and proven to subjugate black people and strengthen white supremacy. This is how it worked. Portland's nine electoral districts were gerrymandered down to five. The previous mix of nine aldermen and 27 councillors was reduced to just five councillors. They would all be elected at large by a citywide vote. This ensured that neighborhoods with high proportions of already marginalized residents would have no representation. And the position of elected mayor? That was abolished and replaced with a city manager to be hired by the five new councillors. Who were those councillors? A headline from the December 5th Bangor Daily News, quote, Klan candidates win in Portland election. George West, Florence Stevens, Philip J. Deering, 
Freeman M. Grant, and Neil W. Allen were the names of these newly minted KKK-endorsed counselors. Portland residents will recognize these names from West Street, Stevens Avenue, Deering Avenue, Grant Street, Allen Avenue, and various other places around the city. After their victory, a KKK official wrote a letter to the Catholic Bishop of Portland that read, quote, Hereafter, no niggers, Catholics, or Jews will ever hold office in Portland, end quote. So there you go. In response to the Great Migration and gains achieved by black Americans in government, business, sports, and culture, extremist white supremacists reacted by designing, promoting, and enacting a system of government that strengthened white supremacy across the country, even in lovely Portland, Maine. But so what? That was 99 years ago. Just because something starts off bad doesn't mean it stays bad. Black folks, Catholics, and Jewish people have all held office in Portland. Many will tell you that Portland has done a lot to help its black population. Half the black people in Portland are immigrants, and the city has programs that have successfully lifted many of them out of poverty. For instance, there are banks in Portland that will give immigrants 0% loans to start a business. It's all better now, right? The working port town of the 1920s eventually became a beautiful and charming coastal city a tourist destination with liberal politics and a thriving arts community, a foodie hub with more restaurants per capita than any other. Portland has become a unique, resplendent, lifestyle brand-recommended utopia, complete with BLM signs and pride flags letting you know that all are welcome. And depending on who you ask, you might never hear more than that. In recent years, Portland's uniqueness has begun to fade. Corporations and developers have been buying up the city and selling it off to the rich, which drives up the cost of living and pushes up the people who made the city attractive in the first place. You may have heard this story before from literally anywhere across the country. But it doesn't stop there, because Maine is the whitest state. The ethnic cleansing at Malaga Island, Gerald Talbot's place names battle, and Portland's white supremacist government that's still largely intact, by the way, There are costs to all of this. When someone condemns you to repeat your history, you pay a price. Others do not. Nationally, the black poverty rate is more than twice the rate of white poverty. Black poverty in Portland is more than twice black poverty nationally. In Maine, black poverty is three times larger than the state's white poverty rate. And in Portland, where the majority of black Mainers live, Black poverty is four times higher. Home ownership in Maine is above the national average for every racial or ethnic group except for black people. In Maine, we own homes at 12% below the national average. In Portland, we're the only group with a home ownership rate below 10%. We have the lowest median household income. We're the only group below $50,000. We're also the only group to have negative or non-existent earnings growth. And we reached our peak in 2018 when our earnings growth was 0%. Because of this and other redlining efforts, black folks in Portland have been segregated into two of the five districts. Our ability to influence city council elections in the other three districts is diminished in exactly the way 
the Ku Klux Klan planned. Electing enough city councilors capable of forming the majority needed to pass laws or to hire or fire a city manager is impossible. A black secret to survival in America is that voting is not enough. It's never been enough. We've known this since long before Maine was the only state to give us that right. Gerald Talbot's example should show you that the path lies on organizing and representation. So why not run for city council? Well, it's at least a full-time job. And that full-time job comes with no staff, and it pays $6,800 a year. That means you got to have a whole lot of money and free time, or just not do the job very well, and frequently, it's both. Of course, there's the option to sacrifice yourself to a degree of permanent scarring. Combine all of that with what I already told you about the realities of being black in Portland, and you can see just how difficult it is to find that path. This is all widely known in the city, and whenever it is brought up, you are sure to find a rich white person in power who will regale you with the legend of Kippy Richardson. It usually goes something like this. Kippy started off a poor black child on the streets of Portland. He was a beloved shoeshine boy who grew up to be a city leader, the first black person to be elected to a municipal office in the city of Portland, a position he was able to maintain by cleaning offices at night. If Kippy can overcome, so can you. That's the legend, anyway. The truth, however, is a different story. The way the legend is told, you wouldn't know that Clifford Kippy Richardson, the first black man to serve on the Portland City Council, wasn't elected until 1976. As far as cleaning offices goes, well, Richardson ran a cleaning company with more than 20 employees, which should give you some idea of what's required to be on the city council, even in 1976. Richardson's political career came to an end in the 1980s when he lost a council race to Tom Allen, the grandson of 1923 KKK-endorsed Neil W. Allen. Because history doesn't always repeat itself, but it frequently rhymes. Of course, while the historical specifics of the city aren't known to all, Portlanders are well aware of the severity of the city's racial and economic divides. The death of George Floyd would make the city face that severity one way or another. In 2004, John Jennings lost a congressional race in Indiana where he ran as a pro-gun, anti-abortion Democrat. In Maine, he was a co-owner and general manager of the Maine Red Claws minor league basketball team. South Portland hired him to be an assistant city manager in 2013, and two years later, Portland hired him for the top job. While in office in Portland, Jennings pushed for policies around policing, poverty, and immigration that were disproportionately harmful to black and brown people. This led Black Lives Matter organizers and other activists across the city to call for Jennings' resignation or his firing. But he did not resign, and he was not fired. Instead, the Portland City Council literally stood in support of Jennings on the steps of City Hall, holding an emergency press conference to defend the city manager 
the morning after an eight-hour Black Lives Matter rally commemorating George Floyd's life and demanding Jennings' removal. In her testimony to the Portland Charter Commission last November, former Portland interim city manager Sheila Hill Christian. A city manager's contract is only as good as council's willingness to hold that individual accountable. I think it is often difficult for city council to come to an agreement to do that. City managers are usually counting votes on a regular basis, making sure they got their majority at all times. And as long as they keep that majority, they usually keep their job. And a lot of times what councils do not want to do on a regular basis is hold that performance management meeting. I've known city managers that have gone years without a performance review. Mm. So, you know, you've got to do that as well. Jennings went several years without a performance review before eventually being subjected to one in October of 2020. The review was conducted behind closed doors, any and all details unavailable to the public. Last September, Jennings was hired as the city manager of Clearwater, Florida. Although the city is in a housing crisis, Jennings recently helped kill an affordable housing project three years in the making. Jennings will likely oversee the sale of the now-defunct project site to the Church of Scientology, as they already own over 140 downtown Clearwater properties. Residents have been fighting the Church of Scientology's admitted attempts to literally take over Clearwater since the 1970s. But that's a story for another podcast. Next time on 99 Years. The mayor is not the person who, you know, running the city or doing the policy. It's the city manager, unelected city manager. And we looked out not only his history, John Jennings, but also the history of the city manager. And when we found out, like, how racist white supremacy is, we're like, okay, we need to do something about it. 99 Years was co-produced by Flo Edwards and made with generous support from Maine Initiatives, the FUBU Fund, Maine Humanities Council, and with fiscal sponsorship through Indigo Arts Alliance.